Welcome to Jebra Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshtata. What you're about to listen to is a live session from Z JLF at the British Library in June 2019. And it is called, What is Not Said? Celebrating the Short Story. Chris Power, Namita Gokhale, and Navtej Sarna in conversation with Paul McVeigh. <laughs> JLF at the British Library in association with Diageo. We're delighted to introduce this session, What is Not Said, celebrating the short story, and we have wonderful authors with us today, Chris Power, Namati Gokhale, um, Navita Sana, and they will be speaking today with Paul McVeigh. So thank you. Hello. That was to you. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Yes, we're all here. Um, I'm real. This is not a hologram. Um, <laughs> Welcome today. Um, I've just flown over from Belfast to come see you and talk to you today. And um, uh, this is a, uh, an event that's all about the short story, which I, I love. And I'll, I'll, um, uh, we're all going to introduce ourselves, so I'll, I'll start with me. Um, I'm a, a short story writer and a novelist. And um, um, I've always loved short stories, and particularly the last few years, I've sort of devoted, I've devoted a lot of my time to reading short story writers, and, um, and that led to me working with an organization in London called Word Factory that runs a monthly event at Waterstones Piccadilly to celebrate short story writers, and it's had everyone from Neil Gaiman to Tobias Wolfe and um, uh, Lionel Shriver, lo- lo- lots of uh, great short story writers, and, um, and from there also I set up the London Short Story Festival um, in Waterstones Piccadilly as well, and, um, and then... Uh, we, uh, I have um, started a blog about short stories, and I put short stories all over the internet to try and encourage people to read them and, and to love them the way I do. And um, I keep hearing someone talking. Is, is, is that in my head? Is that one of my... Oh, there is someone talking. No, there is something. Oh. It's from the next tent. <laughs> Who is it? We can hear it better, but the mics will dry, drown it out. Uh-huh. Okay, oh, that's, that's fine. It's, I just thought it was my... Imaginary friends. Uh, <laughs> just saying, Paul, shut up, shut up. <laughs> Which can also be a helpful voice yeah, sometimes. Okay. Right. So, um, yeah, so, and um, I was lucky enough to go to the Jaipur Literature Festival in January of this year, um, where I chaired a series of events on short stories there um, at, the, at the invitation of Namata. So, um, that's, that's enough about me. And um, each of the writers here, you're very lucky. Um, we've got um, two authors from, from India, and we've got someone who's um, a massive figure in the UK short story scene, as well as an incredible short story writer himself. So, um, let's start with um, um, the, one of the festival directors. Namita, would you like to introduce yourself? And... So, I'm Namita Gokhale. And uh, my bio says writer, festival director, publisher, but I, I think at the moment I'm mainly a grandmother. <laughs> That's what I am. But um, I, I've written about 19 books, and many of them are fiction. I've forgotten how many. And I've just done one book of short stories. Uh, that's it. So I'm very keen to learn because I'm at the moment working also on a collection of short stories. And that's me. Hi, I'm Chris. This is quite a support group, isn't it? I'm Chris, and I'm a short story addict. Um, I've uh, written about short stories for various newspapers for uh, about 12, 15 years, maybe longer. Um, and I published a collection of short stories uh, last year. Um, and I'm rapidly learning the differences between those two things. But, um, yeah, I've just always been very... Uh, very passionate about the form, um, although I have been unfaithful to it, and I've just written a novel, but we don't need to talk about Get that. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm Navtet Sarna, and uh, I've written fiction and non-fiction. Uh, I, in fiction, I started with short stories, and I wrote short stories uh, much <laughs> before, except that nobody would publish them as a book un- until I got a novel. So they told me, you go back and write a novel. So I had to write a novel to get my short stories published as a book. 
which I did finally uh, here. Uh, so I've, I, I, I've learned uh, writing through the short story, and uh, I'd love to actually during our conversation talk about you know writing a short story and novel and which is easier, which is uh, mm. harder, and when uh, in in the sequence of things. But I love the form. Thank you. Yes, I could also say that Navtej has been the Indian ambassador to the UK and also to America. Yes. yes. Personal yes. friend of Mr. Yes, Trump. Yes, when not writing short, short stories, I was all the in, also ambassador to the US. <laughs> uh, do we have to call you anything special or anything? His Excellency. His Ambassadorship. <laughs> Um, uh, well, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure you've got lots of stories to tell from behind the scenes. Um, uh, I would, we're going to do some, um, begin with some readings. I think it's always quite nice to set, start a literature event with some literature, um, because otherwise it can become slightly too academic. Um, and, and, but we, we, will t we will talk more about the form and some of the theories behind short story writing after we've heard some examples. So I'm going to... Start with Chris. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so that's been the bottle. Confused you there. You're, keep you on your toes, okay? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to read a section from um, the first story in this collection. It's called Summer 1976. Um, it's, it's narrated by a woman who is, um, who is about 60 years old, and she's remembering uh, a summer in her childhood when she was uh, 10. She grew up in a suburb outside Stockholm and uh, all you've missed so far is that she's developed this sort of uh, disapproving fascination with her neighbour, a boy called Nisa. Mum worked in the office of a nearby factory and Anders drove his elderly Saab into Stockholm every day to his job, which had something to do with the city's telephone lines. I asked him about it once and he told me it was too complicated for little girls to understand. I was alone a lot during the holidays, but I didn't mind. As long as I had books to read, I was never bored. During the day, I often read in the spotty shade under the birch tree, moving around its trunk as its shadow moved across the lawn. It was like sitting at the centre of a giant clock face, the tree's shadow first sweeping along the length of our apartment block, then the neighbouring blocks. A couple of days after throwing the dead mouse at me, Nisa started running past. He pretended to ignore me, but I saw the little darting movements his eyes made, watching me sidelong. I was much better than him at disguising where I was looking. He was making loud noises and diving on the ground, storming machine gun nests and throwing himself on grenades. But after a while, he tired of this game and grew quiet. Absorbed in my book, the next time I looked up, I was surprised to find him still there, staring up at our building. What will you give me if I get it through the middle window, he said, holding up a red apple with a bite taken out of it. He was looking at the landing windows, which stood open all day and all night that summer in an attempt to get some air circulating through the building. That's the window outside my apartment, I said. I know, we're neighbours. My face got hot when he said that. Somehow I hadn't thought of the idea occurring to Nisa or to anyone other than me. Maybe he really did put his ear to the wall like I did, I thought. Maybe each of us really had listened for the other at the same time. You'll miss, I said. I won't. Okay then, prove you can do it. But what will you give me, Nisa said. He was trying to sound defiant, but there was a whine in his voice. It made me realise I had power over him. The thought excited me. Show me you can do it first, I said offhandedly. Then we'll see. Nisa looked up at the window. He took a few steps back and bobbed the apple up and down a couple of times. As his right arm went back, he held his left out in front of him, pointing straight up towards his target. He threw the apple hard and it flew in through the open window like it had been jerked up there on a piece of string. It hit with a faint smack. Nisa turned around, grinning. I was grinning too. Told you, he said. Now what do I get? I put my book on the ground beside me and stood up. Come here, I said. As Nisa walked towards me, I felt goose flesh wrinkle my skin, even in the heat of the day. He stood in front of me. We were the same height. Close your eyes, I said. 
Why? Close your eyes and you'll get your reward. Nisa closed his eyes and I put my hands on his shoulders. He flinched a little at my touch. Keep your eyes closed, I said. He screwed them shut more tightly. I brought my lips to his. I closed my eyes as well and felt a wave of something go through me. It was like running into a cold sea on a hot day. We stayed like that for a few seconds, still as the tree above us. Then Nisa pulled back. He looked shocked. He tried to say something, but only made a noise. He wiped his hand across his mouth, then shoved me, and I fell backwards onto the dry grass. He ran away, disappearing around the corner of the building. I didn't cry. I don't think I even wanted to. I felt a strange numbness as I looked at the ragged leaves hanging above me. I picked up my book and walked upstairs to the apartment. The apple had hit the wall of the landing outside our front door. It had exploded. A stain like thrown paint was visible on the wall and white fragments of flesh had stuck there. They were already starting to brown in the heat. I stepped over them and let myself in, went straight to my room and lay down on the bed. Thank you. Before we move on to the next uh, story, I just wanted to uh, ask Chris, um, you had worked writing about short stories for quite a long time, mm. reading and writing about them. Yeah. And you had to make a shift from being someone who reviewed, wrote, critiqued, <laughs> critiqued short story writers to someone who was going to put their uh, reputation on the line that you'd built up over these years and say, well, actually, I'm doing this as well. Here are my short stories. What do you think? And then were you worried that people would be going, ha, 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 now it's my turn. We can, we can all critique him and tell him whether he's good enough or not. Because that's what I would have been doing if I was you, but then I'm an Irish Catholic. I'm worried about, <laughs> worry about all this kind of thing. Well, I'm a half Irish Catholic. Yeah, so, I'll I'll go. Go. so did you half worry about it? So, no, unfortunately, no, I'm quite stupid so I didn't really think um, I didn't really think that, that would be the case because I've always wanted to write fiction since I was since I was eight and I read Lord of the Rings and it, it blew my mind and I, I wanted to write fiction ever since then so it, the, the journalism arrived late to me even though I didn't produce any fiction that I thought was any good until what 26 or 7 years after that initial urge to write fiction in my mind, I'd been a, a fiction writer trying to become a fiction writer for, for much longer than I'd been, been a journalist. So they seemed to operate on two, two parallel tracks. Mm. So I was quite surprised when I did a first interview around this book and the first question I was asked was, you know, how does it feel sort of sticking your head above the parapet? Yeah. Which, of yeah. course, is an obvious question. And now, in retrospect, I see that, but I really didn't think about it, which was, was a, a, a blessing, really, because I never felt sort of paralysed by that. I mean, only to the extent that everyone who works in any creative field or any technical field or any field at all is worried about putting their work out there and the, and the feedback they're going to get and whether it's going to be accepted or not. So. Mm. And, and um, just to tell, tell everyone um, specifically about that journalism that we're talking about, because mm. it was, it's become <coughs> a bit of an, it's an institution really here in the UK and in Ireland. I mean, it's, you know, you're very well known, very admired for the work that you've done bringing attention to short story writers. Did you want to just explain exactly how that worked? Sure. Um, I mean, the, the specific um, sort of column uh, is something I've written for The Guardian since 2007 called A Brief Survey of the Short Story. It was intended to be brief originally, but there are now like 70, 70 odd of them. Um, but I don't want to rename it because that would be... That'd be no. crazy, right? Silly. Um, but what, what that is, is each one looks at an individual writer and, and discusses their work, discusses their biography, where that's, where that's relevant or appropriate. But the idea of it is just to sort of give someone, you know, an idea of, you know, whether they like V.S. Pritchett or what the arguments about around his work are or what characterises his work or Alice Munro's or, or William Trevor's or who, whoever it might be. Um, and it just sort of grew out of... Uh, well, I started doing it because I needed some money. 
and um, and I thought, well, wow, so I much money in short stories. <laughs> so much money. I mean, that's why. Whoa. I mean, what do you do with it? I pity <laughs> these poor diplomats and you know festival directors and novelists <laughs> who are working for the love of it. But I've gone straight for the money with my short story collection. It's true. Uh, it's a very cynical field. Um, no, but I, it was, uh, you know, Guardian uh, were, were looking for, for pitches. And I thought, well, I know, I know a bit about probably like 15, 20 short story writers. I could, I could, you know, pump these out every couple of weeks. But as I started doing it, it grew into a really, it was a real education because there were a lot of writers who I might have read one or two of their stories, but I would go away and read, you know, everything they've done, which in, you know, if you're reading Dennis Johnson, it's fine. He only published, well, when I wrote about him, he'd only written one short story collection, albeit an incredible one, but then you read, say, V.S. Pritchett, who I mentioned, he's got, you know, a thousand pages of short stories. Um, it's one of the reasons I haven't done Tagore yet, because there's, there's, <laughs> there's a lot to do. Um, but that was a real, you know, you learn so much by, by reading a, a writer's complete sort of work in that, in that genre. Um, and I really think it fed, in a lot of ways, into, I, I mean, I really think it improved my, my writing, because... It was around 2010 when I actually started producing stories that I thought were, were good enough to sort of to show other people and that I thought were getting close to the idea I had in my head. And that was sort of three years after I started that series. And I don't think the two things are, yeah. are unrelated. And they say to be, um, you know, when asked for advice of, you know, how to be a better writer, be a better reader, you know, mm. read more, you know. Um, uh, Let's have another little bit of a short story. Would you mind? Uh, Not at all. Very, very short, short story. Yes. So Let's let me it. just put it in context. Okay. So um, apart from all those novels, this is the only collection of short stories I've done so far. It's called The Habit of Love. And many of the stories were scattered things that I'd written. And then my then editor said, why don't we put them together? So. I'm not really happy with the way this went because although the stories are all reasonably all right, but they are too different. And, and so I've, I've asked my publisher in India that I want to withdraw the rights and make them into two different sets of stories and develop it into two different anthologies. So this is called The Habit of Love. And in that, there's a story called Chronicles of Exile. Um, a lot of the stories here come from the Mahabharat. The Mahabharat is the ancient Indian epic of 100,000 verses, the longest epic poem ever written, and uh, composed possibly in the 4th century BCE. Um, every age, every generation in India reads and reinterprets in different languages, translates the Mahabharat in their own context of their times, their environment. Mm, and uh, it's it said about the Mahabharat, uh, my Sanskrit is sometimes not so correct, but it said, yad ihasti tad anyatra, yan nihasti na tad pachit, which means all that is found is in the world is present in the Mahabharat. What is not found is not there. In the Mahabharat, it's not there anywhere. And actually, every nuance of human character, surprisingly modern, is, is, is there. And it's not an ethical text at all. It is. So every now and then, films come out, books mm. come out, which are from the Mahabharat. Mm. And uh, once I did, if I'm not digressing too much before I read this out, but I, I once, like uh, as a festival director, in the same way, I, we have 24 national languages. And I organized a seminar where all these 24 languages got together and talked about the greatest literature in that language in the last 100 years. And out of the 24, about 22 of them were reinterpretations of the yeah. Mahabharata. Mm. Still, so that's what we all go on about. <laughs> so uh, this one is about the, there was the, the Mahabharata shows this warring cousins and this great <coughs> battle. And this is the desolation after the battle where the hundred Panda, uh, Kauravs and the five Pandavas have all variously lost different things in the battle. And the mother of the hundred triumphant kings, who have all died, the princes, is in mourning and her hairdresser is trying to talk about her. So, and her name is Kandhari. 
And Kandhari, for those of you, there's a place in Afghanistan called Kandahar. And she was supposed to have come from Kandahar. I've only just heard the news. My queen, Kandhari, is dead. She walked into a forest fire with her husband, King Dhritarashtra, and her sister-in-law, Kunti. The court is in mourning. The priests are orating the funerary prayers. The common people, or what is left of them, are shaken, bewildered. This self-immolation marks the end of an age, a Yuganta. This city has seen enough death. After the war, for months, bodies lay strewn on the battlefields at Kurukshetra. Dogs and jackals would dart out from the forest and make off with an arm, a leg, or a mass of flesh that could have been anything at all. There was no wood in Hastinapur to burn the dead. Two or three logs are not enough to cremate the body of a warrior. Widows would sort through the mess of dismembered corpses to search for their husbands and often their sons as well. They would hold up a decomposed hand to see from the rings or the scars on the wrist if they knew it. They would examine those dead bodies with wonder as if they could not remember or believe that they had once been ordinary women who had held those men in their arms and been held by them and borne them children. They would try to burn the bodies with straw, but it would smoke and the fire would not catch. The old men went to the forest as far off as the Dvetavan, but the wood they brought back was young, the sap still rising in it. The smell of rotten death was in our nostrils, and damp smoke from the funeral fires had settled over the untended pleasure gardens, the abandoned sabhagars, the lonely palaces. In the humble houses of the poor, the smell of rice cooking would sometimes gladden the heart, and sometimes the laughter of a child would break through the sorrowing silence. But in the palaces, the children were all dead, and the young men as well. Now, the old people, Tritarashtra, his queen Kandhari, and the queen mother Kunti have died, consumed by a forest fire. Kunti walked into the fire with my mistress Kandhari, as did blind Dhritarashtra. Servants know their masters better than they know themselves, anticipating their mistakes as keenly as their wishes. Kandhari never pun punished me except once. That was her gracious privilege. But life had punished her fiercely. A hundred sons and only one living. No one deserves so much pain. I have not slept since I heard the news. So this is a little bit from these stories of the Mahabharat that I have tried to retold, retell, and uh, that's it. Thank you very much. This is um, just completely for me. Uh, so excuse me, sorry. But um, when I was reading this, one of the one of the, the things that stuck in my mind was, and I wanted to ask you if it was true. The description of were they was it golden lac gold lac powder or something that how it was made is that was that actually true is that actually true yes of course could you just could you just tell them what it is it's it was for her hair wasn't it, it was something like it was made from scarab beetles or yes the lac was made from the scarab beetles but i have to tell you that when i write something i forget all about it <laughs> so i have a vague idea what you're talking about because i know you've read this story. i will ask you later but, I will show but you. there's a lot of the, these stories from the Mahabharat, I've, I've not read so much of the Sanskrit texts, but I have read many of the Sanskrit texts with the Sanskrit and then the mm. English translation. I've read many versions, many translations, and all of them bring out the details of life as it was lived in those days. Mm. And uh, to my surprise, life hasn't changed so much in India. The way things, lac vandals often made the same way, I mean, if they're not made in China. But the, the, the texture of life in India it's, it's called the ever sung song of India. Things don't change that much. So, so much of the Mahabharat in customs, in practices, in the personalities of people, even what they might wear or the jewelry might wear, there's a continuity through it. Hmm. That's why every age addresses the moral paradoxes and dilemmas of the Mahabharat, which is a completely amoral text. But they believe in something called Swadharma which means that each human being has to find out what is their duty in their own context. Mm. There's no larger context which applies, say, as in a Christian sense or maybe in an Islamic sense for everybody. But 
in the essential Hindu dharma, you can do some, I might do something which is moral for me, but which may clash with your idea of what is moral for you. Mm. So each of these stories, when I try to interpret them, I try to see them through the eye of that character. The women characters, are of course, neglected quite a lot. So I try to see the women characters in their particular dilemmas. Okay, thank you very much. Um, what are you doing there? I'm <laughs> trying to get my reading specs out. <laughs> right, okay, we're ready, we're ready. Okay. Too many wires. <laughs> um, good, and um, we've, we've uh, got a little treat for us um, because uh, short stories, of course, we, nowadays we have a thing called flash fiction, um, which is a very short uh, uh, short story. And uh, people often say, how short is your short story? But flash fiction tends to be sort of like, I guess, from about 250 words to maybe 1,000 or something. But, um, and we, um, in the UK, we say short story roughly between 3 and 5. In America, between 5 and 11. Yeah. And they, they have short, very short fiction competitions for 7,000-word stories. And authors over here be like, what? Isn't that it's like a, that's like a novel. Um, so, uh, but we, the treat that we have is that um, we're actually going to hear a whole story because one of the frustrations about short stories events, you know, when you, when you, when you hear people read out, you're going, oh, could you not just get me to the end? Because you sense it coming up, you know? So we're actually going to get a whole story. Okay. So, better be good. <laughs> Thank no you pressure. so much. Thank no you. Pressure. No, no. I, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have a story which is, which is readable in, in, in almost the given time. Uh, it's a short story, but not, uh, not 250 words. Uh, my real short story is my novel, uh, which, which is a short story, <laughs> by American standards. But, uh, so this is a story which I'm going to read. A, uh, only reason is because the festival director has heard it before in uh, a festival in Bhutan where I read it and she thought it might be a good idea to share here, particularly in the title because that aspect of the title of what is not said. So it's a bit of that. The story was first published in 1995 by Alan Ross of the London Magazine, mm -hmm. who was my, who brought me into short story writing because oh, he, really? after why one story in the BBC, he took three other ones and I thought I'd become a writer. Uh, but thanks to Alan Ross, I kept struggling. Uh, so this is a story. Uh, uh, anyway, it's, it's called Winter Evenings. It's the title story. And, and it's can, set in Bhutan. It's set in Bhutan. And it was written in the early 90s. Uh, so I'll read it out and then we can. Dr. Anand unlocked the door and stepped into his house. The dark rooms were very cold. He switched on the light in the small living room. The window had been left open and the cold breeze had blown magazines and newspapers all over the room. Leaving his doctor's bag on the carved low table, he picked them up, folded them and put them back on the table. Then he went to the window to shut it. Though it was only six in the evening, the cold, brittle darkness was crowded with stars. The mountains were strong, dark silhouettes, but he couldn't see the moon. It must be there somewhere, he thought for he could see the glistening sheen of the river in the wide valley. An icy wind rushed to his face, and with a sudden cold shudder, he shut the window and drew the curtains. Keeping his coat on, he went to the backyard to choose some firewood. Back in the living room, he set three neatly chopped pieces in the metal sheet drum, known in those areas as the Bukhari. Unfolding the newspaper, he pulled out the advertisement pages, crumpled these into balls, and stuffed them under the wood. Then he opened the vent on top of the Bukhari, poured in a few drops of kerosene oil and dropped in a match. In just a few minutes, the paper had given its fire to the wood. It sent the smoke rushing up the pipe that led out through the chimney into the crystal night. And from his window higher up on the same hill, Rao saw the smoke rising. He was glad. Dr. Anand was back. And that meant that he could go over. The bank branch shuttered too and the afternoons hung heavy on Rao. Sometimes he would go for a long walk to the monastery and back to tire himself. But all of last week, the fierce afternoon wind had discouraged him. He had stayed in, reading disinterestedly and writing letters to people halfway across the world whom he hadn't seen in years. So he felt good when the doctor was back. He tied a woolen scarf around his neck, folded the ends into his coat, raised his coat collar, 
pulled on his leather gloves and picked up a short rounded stick. Ready, he stepped out into the cold. It would be a long winter and inevitably looked up to the pass where the snow glistened in the night. Already the snow had been there for two months, cutting off the valley from the rest of the world. It would stay there at least another month and then, if they were lucky, it would begin to melt. The bank was crazy, sending him there. Baptism by blood, he had been told. He had been a sucker to accept the offer. As if anybody cared what he did to disperse miserly loans to the handful of farmers here. It wouldn't make any difference, at least not in the winter, and not if they couldn't keep that wretched pass open. His face flushed against the cold and his teeth set. He knocked on Dr. Anand's door and quickly stepped inside. Come along, come along, called out the doctor. Bloody cold. Always cold, unless the sun is out. When is the sun ever out? Actually, you're right. Haven't seen it this week. Rao loosened his scarf and sat down, extending both hands towards the Bukhari. He took out his pipe and turned it around, tapping it vigorously on the palm of his hand. Dr. Anand watched him do it, but restrained himself from saying anything. He couldn't stand the sweet smell of tobacco that would hang in the room long after Rao left. He would have to open the window again at night. Rao knew that the doctor would soon ask him what he would like to drink, though he knew that the doctor only had whiskey in the house. And the doctor also knew that Rao preferred his whiskey neat. What will you drink? Whiskey, neat, please. The doctor went to the little closet and took out the bottle of whiskey. He had brought six glasses when he had gone down in the summer. Two had cracked during the journey, but he still had four. We'll never need more than two, thought Dr. Anand as he fixed the drinks. There's nobody in this village except Rao, blast him, that I can have a drink with. But when he turned back, he was smiling. Cheers, cheers. Rao took a small sip of his whiskey and a few quick puffs from his pipe. Dr. Anand pointedly moved his chair away before sitting down and then threw himself into it. What news? asked Rao. The doctor ran his fingers through his hair. A woman nearly died today. What happened? Allergy to anesthesia, but she came out finally. Good work. Good luck, rather. How about you? A dull day today. And usually, thought the doctor, your whole of a bank is a veritable hub of activity. But aloud he said, how come? No mail, no work, not one potential borrower. They are all frozen or sick. We really need that new hospital. Back to the new hospital, thought Rao. Can't we ever talk of anything else? And aloud, how's the work going? The contractor says another four months. Four months after the road opens, that is. Oh, I'll be gone by then. You'll get a good posting after this. You deserve it. The doctor's smile was very pleasant, very friendly. But he was wondering what this city slicker had done to deserve anything. Rao knew that the doctor would reach for the pack of cards secretly, mysteriously. As he was coming up, going to come up with a great surprise, some marvelous Christmas present. Dr. Anand bent down and picked up the cards, hiding them in his cupped hands and then revealing them suddenly in the manner of an oriental magician. Rao could have screamed. Rami, asked the doctor. You don't know any other game in any case, thought Rao. Okay, Rami. <laughs> Rao placed his pipe on the table. The smoke curled up gently to the doctor's nostrils and into his head. Throw away that wretched pipe, he wanted to say. The cards were dealt and the game began. The room had warmed up with a fire and a comfortable glow had spread gradually over the room. Each man was alone with his glass, his ten cards and his thoughts. A few weeks more of this, thought Rao, then he would have better company in the evenings than a stuffy, small-town, self-centered doctor. He would be back in the thick of things, back in circulation. It was a pleasant thought. He took a large sip of whiskey. It seared his throat and he coughed. My resident film star, thought Dr. Anand. He must smoke a pipe and drink neat whiskey even though he can't take it. Suffer him for a couple of months more and let's hope his replacement will be a more intelligent chap. Someone genuine and not an upstart. Lost in thought, the doctor got up and put a small log in the Bukhari. Then he blew at the dying flames and saw the blue licks rise again. 
he came back to the table and threw down a king of spades. Almost instantly, he realized that he had made a mistake. What a fool he was. He picked up the card quickly. Sorry, that was a mistake. Rao had seen this before. Tonight, he would not let it pass. In his agitation, he puffed at his pipe quickly and sent the smoke straight into the doctor's face. You can't pick it up, I say. It's only a friendly game. Friendly, my foot, Rao was shouting now. It's cheating. You call me a cheat? You? You pipe-smoking bank class? I'm not a clerk. I'm the manager, you village doc. You vet. <laughs> Dr. Anand wouldn't be called a vet by anybody. With a short, swift movement of his forearm, he slapped Rao across the face. Oh. Smarting from the blow, Rao slapped him back. Then he got up and walked out, leaving the door open to the chilly wind. <laughs> Dr. Anand sat quietly for a long time. Then slowly he got up and put another log in the Bukhari. When he washed the glasses and put them near the drinks closet, he was already hoping that he would need to use them the next evening. And Rao walked home and the chilly wind quickly blew away as blew away his anger. Perhaps he had been hasty to walk away like that. Perhaps he should go back and apologize, or at least he must do it tomorrow. He looked involuntarily at the snow on the pass. It looked so heavy. So permanent. You brought up the uh, title of the session, and um, when I think of this title, I think of the Hemingway mm. theory uh, on the short story. The blanks. He says, yeah, and he says oh, this uh, about the iceberg as well. This mm -hmm. this idea that um, in a short story we only see what is above the water, uh, but really uh, the mass of the sh uh, of it is nine tenths as under what you can't see. So that uh, so this idea um, that the short story. Let's say in comparison to the novel, for example, mm. which has to tell you everything, or you expect that it's going to reveal everything and tie it all up by the end. The short story is concealing things, Some, the, the, deep, the deep things underneath what we do every day. And this story mm. does something similar, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, the, the entire sense of loneliness, the... Uh, how people who are flung together by circumstances in a place where they, you know, end up socializing with each other, spending time with each other because sometimes they don't have a choice, but, uh, but how the, the resentment builds up and anything can trigger it off. Uh, it, uh, the loneliness magnifies your reactions uh, in, in many ways. So, yeah, it's a bit, you know, it's, it's, that's why... I, you know, that's, uh, you, you talk only of the surface and because you, in a short story, if you tend to start describing things like you in a novel, you lose the tension. So, you know, novel, you can afford to go from here, go away for three years into one direction, come back, go back into childhood in another direction and come back and still somehow bring it together. But in a short story, I think a very important uh, element is, uh, is it has to be taught. It has to be tight. Mm. Uh, and uh, although, you know, if you read the New Yorker short stories, uh, uh, probably that uh, doesn't apply because sometimes, you know, mm. you can go off into 10 pages. Of, mm. uh, but uh, the traditional uh, sort of V.S. Pritchett uh, kind of uh, definition of a uh, short story is that it should have large echoes, but it shouldn't be speaking of everything out, you know, mm. it should resonate. But the tension of a short story, and that's why it's so easy to spoil a short story. Because mm. one wrong paragraph, one wrong sentence can just ruin the tension and, uh, and you know it's broken. So uh, while the novelist can be more forgiving, you have that much more space to make mistakes. There's a beautiful phrase. Um, I'm sure it's Mary Lavin, our short story writer who says that um, a short story is an arrow in flight. Yes. And when you were talking, you were doing that, you were saying, it's like this. 
short stories yeah. like this and you were do and it was like you were doing yeah. that path that very yeah. thing so i just wanted to say something about this story i first heard it in bhutan where he read this out and i don't know if it is set in bhutan or in a place like bhutan but in bhutan. i think he was posted in bhutan in one of those sort of evenings maybe he had a neighbor like this but <laughs> the, the the thing about it for an indian why it gets a even larger perspective is that the names give away a lot because one is Anand, who is from North India. Therefore, a little more used to the cold, perhaps, Dr. Anand. Um, but yeah. the other one is Dr. Rao, who's from South India. Yeah. For, so anyway, the distances between Rao and Anand are so huge. Yeah. And Rao would be not used to cold weather at all. So I, I always think the way he would even chosen those two characters and their names but for an Indian reader yeah. has so many more angles. Namita, since you mentioned it is actually written in Bhutan. It was set in the central valley of Bhumtang, which is yes. central Bhutan. And it was inspired by a doctor whom I met when I was touring Bhumtang. And he was a Bhutanese doctor, not an Indian. But he was a Bhutanese doctor and he uh, invited me to his house. And he was very lonely and he kept talking about the new hospital. And he took me to see the old hospital and how miserable it was. And I still have the picture of a dental chair uh, uh, and an anesthesia table, but nothing else and no equipment around it. So on the, I, I said, how do you perform operations on, on not anesthesia, to operating table? I said, where's your anesthesia? He says, you know what the anesthesia is? The patient walks six days needing an operation. They reach here. Uh, I have two bottles of rum. One I give to the patient, one I drink myself. <laughs> Are you sure he wasn't Irish? <laughs> I think I know this guy. <laughs> so then, then, then sort of other things came in, but that's where the... <laughs> Brilliant. Um, yeah, um, Christy, this, this idea of what is not said, how do you, how do you know what to leave out, what to unsay? Um, how do, do you, is it an instinctive thing? Is it something you, you go back and do while you're editing and you, you, you take everything? How do, you, how do you, what's the process? Yeah, I think, I think it's definitely, um, I think it's achieved in the edit. Like, I, I can't speak for, for the other writers here, but certainly in my first drafts, I always say way too much. Like, when I come back to it, I'm, I've clearly sort of over-explained things. I've over-emphasized things. I think it's just the necessary stage that you, you go through and then sort of, pair it back. But how much you pair it back is, is, I think it can be quite elastic. I think, you know, you hear that sort of for a short story to work, like every word has to count. But I, I think there's, I think there's thankfully, <laughs> hopefully more given it than that. I was actually reading for that, um, something I wrote for The Guardian a while ago. I read this fantastic uh, R.K. Marianne story called A Horse and Two Goats um, that he published in The New Yorker in 1965. And then he published it in a collection in 1970 and it's like three times as long. It's still the same story, but it's got significant differences. It's about, it's about a, a, a villager sitting outside tending his two goats, is all he owns, and this American drives by, and he's next to this centuries-old statue, and he wants to buy the statue. But the villager, who only speaks Tamil, and the tourist only speaks English, and the villager thinks he's offering him a huge amount of uh, money for his goats. So he's ecstatic. And it's all... I thought of it with your story, because it's all about miscommunication, or these two levels of communication that are going on. But in the... I don't know the editorial history. I don't know if he submitted this longer story to The New Yorker, and they cut it back into this... The New Yorker version is this very honed comic tale. But in the larger version, you get more about his... You learn his name. His name is Mooney. You learn more about his wife, who kind of, um, you know, detests him for being a failure and sort of, um, you know, is always lecturing at him to, to make something of his life. He talks about his trips to the bang shop and stuff. And it's, it's, it's very... You've got this sort of... The texture of the, of the village, which Narayan talks about his... I think he called his stories... Um, miniatures that capture human experience in all its opulence. So there you have this double idea of these are very sort of honed, small objects or artefacts, but they can encompass... You know, you always hear a, a reviewer's cliche you hear is like, um, 
this story, you know, has the impact of a novel, mm. which always makes me a bit angry because I love novels and I love short stories. I don't think they have to be oppositional, but it's perfectly within the grasp of a short story to have a huge impact. It's not like it's slipping its bounds or somehow behaving against type. If it does have a huge impact, I think um, you quoted Mary Lavin, and I think Anne Enright said of John McGahan that his stories were like a hand grenade rolled across a kitchen floor, <laughs> which is a quite an arresting description of how you can deal with you know, domestic matters in short stories. And I think they do generally um, lend themselves to the domestic perhaps more than, more than novels do, or in a way that doesn't make it all that's talked about. But they have this explosive impact, you know, depending on if they have that tautness that you talked about. Yeah, well, you know, Chekhov said that all you have to do to write a story is look around your room. So there's the smallness of things makes a difference. But to go back to whether you pare it down or you write sparingly, I think I suppose everybody has his own thing. I would find it very difficult to pare things down if having written a story. So I tend to write the short story very tight to try to write it. Because, so I've never ever written a short story on a computer, for instance. Oh, all right, okay. Uh, because that the computer you tend to sort of write fast and you write too exp expansively, at least I do. So I, I've always felt that if I'm writing a short story, it's best to get hold of a good old legal pad and a scratchy pen. <laughs> so every word you think about before you actually put it down. So you might cut out a few words, but you don't have to cut out paragraphs. Mm. I was talking, I was uh, at the Belfast Book Festival last night, I was talking to um, uh, Lisa McInerney and Nicole Flattery, I don't know if you've read her, her, her collection, and uh, uh, some other short story writers. And we were just talking about, um, how how we write, and it was fascinating to hear the uh, the differences. Um, so uh, I think one writer uh, was saying that they start with an image. Another writer said that um, they already know the whole story before they sit down, and um, and others said you know they just they just need to know sort of a couple of lines at a time, and they just you know that sort of idea of the. Driving at night with the headlights, I think Dr. O said, isn't it? You know, you just need to see that far mm. each time. And then um, we were joking about saying, well, you know, but you don't go driving at night without knowing where you're going and having a map and having a destination. Because you know, So we were having all of these kind of conversations. I just wondered um, what your experiences were. I mean, when you sit down to write a short story, um, do you, does it start with an image? Does it start with a voice or a sound? Or is it going to be anything that will set you off? Well, I, I think in terms, I mean, things, different things can trigger different forms of writing. But I think in terms of a short story, I mean, I wouldn't be able to start a short story simply on an image or a voice. Uh, I would be able to start a story once I know what is the, is there a, what is the story? Where is the inflection? So there, there comes a point in each story where something breaks mm. or changes. Mm. So I, you know, you've got to get that and for me, and then you can build front and back and setting and things. Mm. But for, for instance, here the thing, I mean, you've got to get that, that there is two lonely people and they hate each other, but they, somebody slapped him. So you, know, you, you hear that somewhere. And the rest of the thing then sort of, your mind builds it around and you know, things sort of, and then you finally feel you're ready to write. Yes. But for me, at least, that, that point would be important. Mm -hmm. Chris? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll take ideas wherever I can, wherever I can get them, wherever they come from. Well, I mean, not from anyone else, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course no, not. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Awkward pause. Um, the, the, the extract I read um, from that story, that was actually my uh, mother-in-law is Swedish, and um, she told me a story about this boy who threw an apple through a window and, uh, okay. and she ended up telling a, a lie about it. And it was just something that always stuck with her in her childhood, something that she, uh, she saw someone doing something wrong and then something else, someone else did something wrong that she didn't see and she assumed that it was the person she'd previously seen doing something wrong. And she, just, she told it to me as an as a anecdote and it just, it just stuck in my mind. And the rest of the story around it is um, fictionalised and didn't come from, from her or her childhood. Um, <laughs> But that sort of sat with me, and it just, I think certain things arrest you, and you might make a note of them, or you might, yeah, you, I, I mean, if I don't write it down, it's pretty much gone, because I have a terrible memory. Um, and some of these things just continue to sort of uh, grow and develop, I think, while they're, they're sort of in the, in the compost heap, or in the, in the humus. Mm -hmm. um, 
and, and some, some never become anything else, but other ones, yeah, they generate. But I think the longer, I do like to leave it a long time before I start to write something, because I find that if I sort of get stuck, it's hard to restart. But if I've got it bubbling away somewhere, then uh, so, so a certain amount of fluency is there when you come to the page, then that, that really helps, helps me. Your, your ideas and what so starts you off? I, I was thrown out of college when I was young. And this was a big sort of, it was a very creative moment in my life because I may have been an academic if it wasn't that. So after that, I'm feeling very rejected by the you were, Did you say you were thrown out of college? Yeah. What did you do? It's not no. <laughs> That's, That's a novel. That's a novel. That's a novel. <laughs> That's a novel. <laughs> so when I was thrown out of college, I suddenly entered the non-intellectual world and I started a film magazine. So I really wanted to, I, I thought I was, I'd always thought I'd be a writer or a painter or something. And here I was running a very, very successful film magazine and I was just 20. And so, I used to write these short stories, and, and the, sorry, the story is a bit wandering, but we had an editor, and I was the owner and the publisher, and they didn't think I could write this stuff. And I used to write these short stories and share them with this lovely editor there called Elfrida, and she'd say, Namita, I don't think they work. And then I wrote some poems, which I, even I could see that they didn't work. And so I really got terrified of the form of the short story, because I felt what I had written was no good. And then, out of the blue, the magazine shut down, and I wrote my first novel. I was 26. I came here. It was published. It was a huge success around the world. And it was a short novel, but it wasn't a short story. And then I, I never thought of short stories again. And then somebody commissioned me. Jeet Thail, in fact, the writer, Indian writer, he said, Namita, please write a story for an anthology. And I remember sitting in a hotel in Nepal, having to submit the story the next day, uh, no internet. I mean, I had to go back to Delhi and send it over to his house, typed out. I, I'm that ancient. And then I, I, I just sat in this dark room, and uh, because it was a very dark hotel, I remember, and I just wrote that story. And it was so good to write it, because I hadn't been writing for a while, but it was only the compulsion of time. So I'm sorry to say that for a long time, all these exalted ideas didn't come to me. I thought, you write a short story when you're short of time, and you write a novel when you have more time. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites. This podcast is produced by Launchora, a storytelling and creative learning platform, in association with Teamwork Arts, the producers of the Jepper Literature Festival. If you haven't already, do subscribe to our show wherever you're listening to this podcast. Ah.